You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk and Nowhere to Run. My name is Chris. Thank you for downloading this episode. Today I'm going to get into a number of things, but first I thought I would do a few show notes and uh, news items and things like that. I have uh, thankfully finished the book that I'm working on, the Islamic Antichrist Critique book, and I'm kind of in the uh, uh, wait and see mode right now where I'm waiting to see if I need to do any more um, editing of or fine-tuning of the book before I start production with the audio and videos and all that kind of stuff. So I kind of um, am in a kind of no-man's land right now where I don't have much to do, so I thought I would put out a podcast instead. Um, and I hope to be putting out a lot more podcasts as I start recording the audio for the audio book. But um, in the meantime here, let's talk about a few items. The first is... You know, I saw this this uh, the making its rounds in the news the other day about this uh, papyrus that was found in um, an Egyptian mask. And technically, this is kind of old news. They started talking about it back in 2012, but uh, it started, you know, being a, a news item recently. And it's really pretty interesting. It's um, you, these papyruses, particularly um, the Gospel of Mark, is what they say they've found in these Egyptian masks. So Egyptian masks were made um, with a lot of layers of paper at the time. And since paper was a pretty valuable commodity, they, you know, reused a lot of paper that was laying around. And um, so they made multiple layers of different kinds of papers. And there's a little bit of controversy about whether it's uh, prudent to uh, take apart one uh, valuable uh, and antique, I guess you could call it, uh, that is to say this Egyptian mask in order to break it down into its many papers. But um, they've determined that some of these masks are really not that valuable and they're kind of common and it's really no big loss. But that doesn't change the fact that there is still a bit of a controversy about it. But the the story is that they found, um, they say, the oldest copy of a New Testament fragment particularly the Gospel of Mark, which would date to around 90 A.D., which is um, significant. That's more than a decade earlier than the uh, previous text. And that might, might not sound like much, but there is a whole lot of um, sort of liberal uh, Bible criticism that really relies on the text not being what it is uh at that early time there there is a lot of talk about how you know your Bart Ehrmans and other people that really rely on a um, on the New Testament Testament not being in its form that we know it um, very early so the this is a big blow if it ends up being uh, an accurate assessment of the date to a lot of the uh, the you know critics uh, the critics out there and, you know, it's interesting, and I, I should point out that there is, of course, some naysayers about it. I was reading an article on CNN about, you know, is this really the earliest uh, um, document of the New Testament? And, you know, they've got a lot invested in it as a secular community. If you really do the math, this is a big blow to a lot of what is 
believed to be uh, you know, common knowledge about the dating of the New Testament. It can't be what it is very early, and this is a, a significant blow to that worldview. So anyway, they put out this article saying things like, you know, the, nobody's really shown it to us, you know, and uh, it's because this is still kind of in a in a few hands right now. I suppose they're waiting to get more accurate information and whatnot. So it's not been released publicly for peer review and other people to uh, check their facts, so to speak. They called into question things like the uh, the dating of the ink or the dating of the form of the handwriting and the dating of carbon dating, the, the three forms that they used to date this uh, to 90 AD. And the article in CNN was basically like, well, you know, those aren't terribly accurate and they could mean other things and so on and so forth. So, you know, when it work, when all that stuff works for them, they don't have much to say about it. But when it uh, when it doesn't, of course, they call it into question. But um, and so for that reason, we need to be careful about trumpeting these kinds of things, because ultimately it could, you know, be later than than that. We really don't know yet, but it does seem like it is. And and there's something about this that I think is interesting. Um one of uh, the consistent prayers that I have on my uh, prayer card is that God would bring to light things like this. And, you know, whether it's archaeological or texts or, or whatever, just more and more information that validate the biblical claims. And I know that there's stuff out there that we'd all be really surprised about. And whenever these kinds of things are found, we're always kind of blown away that they could possibly be preserved. Like, the Qumran caves, the you know the Dead Sea Scrolls. That was a pretty uh, unique thing to find. I mean, who would have thought that uh, some clay pots in a in a cave would be the right conditions to preserve all those ancient texts, which uh, did so much to validate, for example, the Book of Isaiah among uh, many others. But um, you know, and here we have this mask. I mean, who would have thought papyrus in in a mask would be a, a significant find? But there's got to be lots of stuff out there, and I hope that uh, more and more of this stuff comes to light, whether uh, it's about the, you know, critics, critics about the existence of Jesus, or uh, particularly the, uh, the the text of the New Testament, because, you know, the, the more that we can find early texts about the New Testament, which agree with one another, and that's the fascinating thing about the text of the New Testament, is that they agree with what we're reading today in our Bibles. I mean, with very, very few uh, deviations, and those deviations are uh, uh, theologically insignificant. You know, a word here, a word there, very little uh, changes, and, and nothing changes theologically. And that's a problem because they require, for example, the deity of Christ to be a later invention. You know, Bart Ehrman, for example, How Jesus Became God, you know, is his new book, and how he, uh, he his thesis is that uh, Jesus was later developed by uh, late Christians to be a deity when, in fact, the early uh, Christians didn't believe that, which is nonsense, and it doesn't uh, doesn't equate with what we know. And it re- really requires so much of uh, him pointing to certain sections of the Bible and saying, that was added later. We know that because the form of that, you know, the, the vocabulary is a little bit different. This This thing that has become science in the critical world, form criticism, which... Uh, needs to be seriously called into question, and it is called into question by other uh, scholars. I talked to a professor one time about how that became a science, form criticism, and he said basically what you have is a, uh, is a clique of scholars 
that have sort of agreed within themselves that that's a, a valid way to determine whether or not something is is true in Scripture. That is, if certain vocabulary is used differently or whatever. And it, he called it a click. Uh, I can't remember the exact term, but it's something like click scholarship. And um, it's it, in my, my argument against that is if that is a valid way to determine if somebody wrote something or not, you know, the whole argument with Isaiah has always been in, in the critical world. Oh, Isaiah didn't write, you know, there's two Isaiahs. One wrote one portion of Isaiah and another wrote another because the, there are slight variations in, you know, the vocabulary or, or different things like that. And it's, uh, if that's going to be true, then you need to come up with a lot of papers to, to prove why when a person uses a different vocabulary word, that that isn't the same person who wrote the, uh, another part and used another vocabulary word or called God, you know, uh, Yahweh in one, in one area and, and Adonai in another it's just different, uh, uh, different uses of the same kind of thing. It doesn't mean that it's a different person. It's such a silly idea. Anyway, I'm, I'm well off the topic here. But anyway, I just wanted to point that out in case you haven't heard about it and, and uh, encourage you to pray for more of these kinds of discoveries to come to light. I don't ultimately think that these things are going to make everybody Christian. In fact, I think um, you know people will always just come up with something else. It's not this kind of thing that is going to change the world. But uh, at the same time, I think it, uh, it, it, it shows this consistent pattern all throughout Christianity of the critics saying one thing, the critics getting completely destroyed as new evidence comes to light. And it's just a really good record that those of us who believe the Bible means what it says and says what it means have had throughout the years. Another news item I wanted to mention really quickly is that Alan Kirshner of Eschatos Ministries, a pre-wrath proponent, has announced a debate with Dr. Thomas Ice, um, though the exact date and venue are going to be announced later, he says in his blog post next month, that is February. Um, and I'm really excited about this. I think it's one of the first times that a prominent pre-tribulationalist, and it doesn't get more prominent than Dr. Thomas Ice, will debate another prominent pre-wrath proponent. And it's going to be a lengthy debate, around three hours, a formal moderated debate. So it should provide a really excellent opportunity for people who are undecided and people who want to make a more informed decision about this most important topic uh, to, to do that. And I think it should be promoted and it should be uh, shared a lot when it comes out. I do hope it turns out, but you know, turns out good, but regardless of how it turns out, it will be a fruitful thing uh, for the body of Christ to uh, make an informed decision about that. The thesis statement of the debate will be um, the church will face the Antichrist before the rapture. And that thesis statement really gets to the core uh, difference between pre-wrath and pre-tribulationalism because in many ways, they are very similar. They both believe that the rapture will occur before the wrath of God, that the church will not go through the the wrath of God. But there is a key difference in that the uh, pre-tribulationalists would put the persecution of the Antichrist of Christians as a part of the wrath of God, where the pre-wrath proponents uh, argue, uh, I would submit, uh, very good that that cannot be the case 
So we'll see how this turns out, but I just wanted to mention that because I do think it is a great opportunity. So congratulations to Alan Kirshner, who has, uh, I know, been been looking for a, uh, a good debate partner for some time, and it's good to see that his persistence has finally uh, paid off. All right, so today I wanted to talk about just a few small things from the book that I've been writing about the Islamic Antichrist theory. I didn't want to get into anything too... Uh, lengthy, so I thought I'd just pick about two small things that might be interesting uh, for this discussion. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was the beheadings in Revelation 20, verse 4. I'll go ahead and read the passage. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Okay, so first a little bit of context. This occurs, you know, right after Armageddon, basically. And the these people are apparently those people that died after the rapture, after the day of the Lord began. These people um, did not receive, you know, didn't worship the Antichrist and were beheaded as a result of that. And they are um, included in the resurrection, which is a promise to all Christians by being re- resurrected at the very end. There's kind of a special resurrection for these people who became Christians after the rapture. That is to say, uh, the great hope and, 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 uh, and uh, of all Christians is to be resurrected to eternal life, and that's no exception for those who came to know the Lord after the rapture. So this group of people were beheaded. This is, interestingly, the only time the word beheaded is used. Some translations of Revelation 24 of this word have slain or other uh, general terms meaning killed, but the Greek word must refer to a beheading. Now, I think that this is interesting because I, I, I consider this a departure from what the Antichrist was probably doing before the day of the Lord, and I'll explain why that is. In the previous times, because the, the slaying of Christians and other people by the Antichrist is mentioned several other times in the Bible. He is going to be a great persecutor and killer of people, and that fact has been highlighted in, in many, many uh, instances. However, never was the term beheading used in those instances. It's always a very general term for slain. It's only right here with these very interesting people, those that came to know the Lord after the rapture and lived through the day of the Lord judgments, the wrath of God, that we hear of the Antichrist beheading them. So I would say that th- this group is different than what the Antichrist, you know, everybody's worried about what the Antichrist is going to do, you know, the, the Christians are going to be persecuted and all this stuff that happens after the abomination of desolation, the greatest persecution of all time, that's really the core um, thing that uh, that if, you know, going back to the thesis statement of the that upcoming debate, if the church will see the Antichrist, that's really the thing that we need to be concerned about. And I don't see beheadings in that persecution. Um, and here is a possible reason why we don't. Um, in Revelation 9, verse 6, <clears throat> this is well within the, the day of the Lord, and I don't think anybody would argue this is this is speaking of the, the day of the Lord, the time of the wrath of God against the wicked of the earth. It says, 
In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. Now, that's a pretty interesting statement. It seems on its uh, face to essentially be saying that it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, for a person to die uh, during the judgment of God. And that makes sense in a sense. I mean, this judgment of God on earth, this earthly judgment of God, is kind of a decree that God is saying, look, you're going to go through this. So you're not going to get a uh, an easy way out. And one of the things that he does during that is is apparently supernaturally prevents people from dying in a certain way, though they are going to desire to die, but death will flee from them. Now, this sounds a little bit uh, odd, right? I mean, I know there's a lot of theories about what this could possibly mean or whatever, but when you take it in, you know, it all in context, when the day of the Lord begins and this these great and terrible things are happening um, that God is is doing to the wicked of the world, which are supernatural. I mean, they are, uh, you know, a lot of them could be understood as as natural occurrences, whether they be, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, famines and, and, and comets or whatever, those kinds of things. But there's also a great deal of supernatural things going on. I think people at this point recognize that this is God that is judging them. And I say that for a number of reasons. First of all, we're, we're given, uh, they're given voice in the book of Revelation and not repenting. They are uh, seemingly eyes wide open at this point, knowing that this is the day of the Lord. In fact, I think this begins with the, uh, the, the rapture. I think that nobody really misses the rapture. As Jesus says, it's, it's like lightning shining from one end of the earth to the other. He's going to appear with power and glory in the heavens. And we see in Revelation 6, when the wrath of God uh, is said to be beginning, you know, behold, the wrath of the Lamb has come. This is the voice of those that are about to experience it. They're hiding in the rocks and, you know, hoping the mountains will fall on them and the rest of it. They are uh, giving, you, you know, they're afraid of the wrath of God. And again, we see their voices later uh, recognizing that it is God's wrath that has come upon them, yet they refuse to repent. So I, I see the day of the Lord as something that that uh, there isn't any more, or let's say very little, illusion as to what's going on. It is people recognizing that God is judging them. And so in this very unique time when God's judgment has begun, uh, in addition to all the other supernatural things that are happening, I believe that this verse, Revelation 9, verse 6, is telling us that God, in addition to that, makes sure that people uh, cannot die by usual means. Now, um, it is uh, a theory, and this must be understood to be speculation, that this would have to necessarily affect everybody after the rapture. Nobody, if we understand this theologically, is after the rapture, nobody is going to be a Christian in the very split second after the rapture occurs. The very definition of why they were not raptured is because they weren't Christian. So everybody is in the same boat um, before the wrath of God uh, or as the wrath of God is starting. Everybody is non-Christian and therefore subject to the coming judgments. So therefore, if 
if something happens to prevent the death of people in order to make them experience the wrath of God at that point, it must necessarily affect everybody out there, including those people who will ultimately uh, become Christians during that most terrible time. Therefore, if the Antichrist, which I would argue seems to be the case here, changes his tactics of execution after the day of the Lord begins, um, it is a result of executions being much more difficult. Now, of course, this presumes, um, I would say a weakness of this would, would presume that um, that beheadings can, in fact, circumvent that supernatural long-lasting of life. That is to say, no normal means of, of, of execution or uh, whatever else work, but beheading kind of does the job. And that is what I would argue is happening with these beheadings. It certainly is not indicative of, uh, you know, the Islamic nature of the Antichrist. And that argument by itself is, you know, a pretty uh, circumstantial argument. But it, it would be that argument of the Islamic Antichrist theorists would be much more, um, uh, uh, have a lot more bite if it was a very consistent thing all throughout the, uh, discussion about the Antichrist's persecution of Christians, but it's not. As I mentioned before, it only occurs with these people that were alive after the day of the Lord, and it only occurs, the word only occurs once in Scripture for these particular people. So it's not a, it's not a rock-solid argument against that idea, um, but I do think it is a possible explanation of why beheadings are necessary um, uh, to execute people after the day of the Lord. All right, another thing I wanted to talk about was the argument about types of the Antichrist. So a lot of Islamic Antichrist proponents um, will put a lot of emphasis on various types of the Antichrist in the Old Testament or the New Testament and say, well, this is a, a, a type of the Antichrist, so let's take various characteristics of this uh, person and apply them to the future Antichrist. And in some cases that can work, but I think that very often, and it's not just with theories about the Antichrist, but very often if somebody has a theory that they can't quite prove in any uh, traditional doctrinal way, will default to finding types and applying them or, or using them to prove their doctrine. Uh, many rapture theories um, have this problem. They look at types and say, this is a type of the rapture, therefore X, Y, and Z must be true. And I don't really have any problem with using types or typology to support your argument that you've made uh, with other places in Scripture but when it, uh, when it relies almost exclusively on types, it should be a red flag that, uh, that there might be something wrong with that particular theory. But in this case, um, these types, and I guess I should define a type. A type is something in the Old Testament generally that is a uh, preordained representative relation to something in the, uh, in the New Testament. So, for example, Moses in his role of prophet leader and mediator for God's people, was a type of Christ who functions in a similar, though more exalted way. And 
another issue with types is that a lot of people, when they come up with types of the Antichrist, for example, have their own sort of unique uh, list of types of the Antichrist. And they come up with the criteria for what is and what isn't a type of Antichrist. Um, you know, it can be a little bit loosey-goosey about how you're going to decide what that is. And really, people do that with a lot of other things. There are very few instances in Scripture where where a certain type is given particular weight. So, for example, in the case of a type of Christ, we're told in the book of Hebrews that Melchizedek, for example, or Moses in another place, is a type of Christ in the Old Testament. So we can be um, relatively sure, because basically Scripture tells us it's uh, true, that those were in fact types of Christ, and that we can look to those instances in the Old Testament for more information uh, about uh, you know, uh, uh, as a prefiguration of Christ. But we also must be uh, careful because there are also many differences. And this is really where the, 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 the issue is with a lot of these things. We can look at Moses, for example, and Jesus and see quite a lot of differences as well as similarities. And it would be wrong to say, you know, that, Mo, you know, if somebody, for example, in the Old Testament before Christ came, you know, recognized that Moses was a type of the Messiah, they would be wrong to apply too much information about the origins or nature of Moses to determine, you know, who the Messiah was going to be. You know, they couldn't say, for example, that, well, we know that uh, Moses was a type of the Messiah, so the Messiah must come from Egypt. E- you know, it would be it would be wrong to 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 put too much of that type and force it into the New Testament equivalent. Um, and so one of these types of Antichrist, it's a pretty rock-solid one because it is validated in the New Testament by Jesus and the Olivet Discourse, is um, Antiochus Epiphanes. And uh, those of you that know much about uh, Bible prophecy will have no uh, problem with understanding that it's, it's probably one of the most significant and sure types of Christ that we have. And because Antiochus Epiphanes uh, ruled in Syria, there is uh, a great contingency of people that say that the Antichrist therefore must come from Syria, and therefore they would extrapolate that to mean he must be a Muslim since uh, a majority of the people in Syria are Muslims. But there are a number of issues with this, and I guess the first thing I would say about Antiochus, because he is used so prevalently in the Islamic Antichrist theorists, is that it's often overlooked that though Antiochus did rule from Syria, he was a Greek king um, ruling over a Greek empire, worshiping Greek gods. Antiochus was Greek, and he happened to rule over Syria because it was uh, a part of the uh, land he, he, he gained after, well, many years after the four generals of Alexander the Great, the Greek Empire. It was technically a part of that. It's kind of like Rome ruling over Egypt. You know, the, for example, certain people were installed in Egypt over the years uh, to rule that area, but they were Roman. Uh, it was a part of the Roman Empire. Maybe that's not the greatest example, but you, you get my point. Just because Antiochus lived in Syria doesn't change the fact that it was truly a Greek empire, which which is validated in Scripture in uh, Daniel 8. We're, we're you know, told that that area of the world at that time, speaking of those four empires that were 
uh, a part of the Alexandrian Empire. They were a part of the Greek Empire. The Bible doesn't separate them and say, no, this is a different organization. It's just the outgrowth of Alexander's uh, early death and and the it being split up between four uh, four generals. But it doesn't doesn't negate the fact that it was in fact a Greek Empire. He was a Greek man. He was worshiping Greek gods in a Greek empire. So that is sometimes overlooked. But another thing that I would say is the general idea of saying, well, Antiochus was, you know, ruling in Syria, therefore the Antichrist must be Syria or, or Syrian or anything else like that. You have inherent contradictions because if we are relatively exclusive about types of Antichrist, um, you know, don't try to find anything that's just totally wrong. We can look at some people that were types of Antichrist and see that they were from different areas. For example, uh, Pharaoh in Egypt. Obviously, he was from Egypt. Um, the king of Tyre and the king of Babylon, both of whom have very explicit uh, uh, passages where it starts off talking about the king of Tyre and king of Babylon, but quickly becomes clear that it's a, a type of Antichrist, particularly with the king of Babylon. And so there we have a, a contradiction. Is it going to be Egypt, or is it going to be Syria, or is it going to be Babylon, or is it going to be Tyre that he's from? In addition, they're not all Gentiles. Another another uh, argument is that you can find types of Antichrist with certain kings in, in Israel, Herod, uh, Absalom, Saul, all at various uh, points. The point is, is that not even all the types of Antichrist are Gentiles, let alone from the same place. To make an argument that Antiochus uh, or any information about Antiochus is going to tell us where the Antichrist is from is just wrong because it creates, a, first of all, a great number of contradictions unless you're going to say he is the only type of Antichrist in the Bible, which very few people, if any, would agree with. So the other issue is this even even this would be okay if there was something in another place in, in Scripture that told us that we were to understand the type of Antichrist uh, in, in Antiochus in this way. If there was some kind of, uh, of guideline or, or um, uh, anything that was trying to tell us, hey, look at the type of Antichrist, and then you'll know where the Antichrist comes from. Anything that suggested that in any place, it would be okay. But in the absence of any direct, uh, uh, you know, attempt of Scripture to tell us to do that, we shouldn't just do it because it creates a ton of contradictions, even if it's just with the Gentiles, you know, Egypt or Syria or Babylon or Tyre. It, those are all different places. Is he going to come from all those places simply because those were types of Antichrist as well? And, of course, uh, we have several who are kings of Israel as well that could be argued are types of Antichrist. So, so that's that's my point about uh, that. All right, we have a little bit of time left over, so I think I'm just going to talk about some very general logical problems with the Islamic Antichrist theory. I won't spend uh, too much time or go into too much depth here, but these are things that we know quite plainly from Scripture about the Antichrist that don't uh, fit with the Islamic Antichrist theory. So... For example, the idea that the Antichrist claims to be God is um, really quite uh, quite clear 
from Scripture. We see that say, said almost verbatim in Second Thessalonians 2, 4, Daniel eleven thirty six, and others. This is not something that is uh, uh, debated very much because it is so clear. But that, I, that clear idea about the Antichrist doesn't quite fit at all, really, with the Islamic Antichrist theory. So in Islam, the idea that a man is Allah is extremely blasphemous. It is idolatry. It is a core tenet of Islam. It's the reason why they reject Christianity. Islam really developed, in a sense, as a uh, as a polemic to Christianity. Of course, it developed in the 600s, uh, so that was during a time when Christianity was a very, you know, prominent religion. It's kind of like, um, you know, for lack of a better example, it's uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons. Their core belief system is based on a rejection of certain Christian doctrines. I mean, the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, they exist because of their rejection of a certain Christian idea. It, it's so important uh, for Jehovah's Witness to believe, uh, f- for example, you know, that Jesus wasn't God, um, that a very similar kind of thing going on. You're not going to find a Jehovah's Witness that doesn't believe that, or I hope that you do, but you're very, it's going to be very rare. So my point is that, that, that the rejection that, the, that a man can be Allah is a very, very important part of Islam. And it is not something that, you know, you're going to, you know, regardless of how many supernatural things or how many good things that the Antichrist does, let's say if he was, you know, attempting to be an Islamic uh, uh, champion, it, it still would be such a fundamental shift in Islam for them to say, oh, that man is Allah, that can now be a part of our doctrine. So it doesn't fit, is what I'm saying. And it even doesn't fit with, you know, the Islamic Antichrist theorists would say it's the Mahdi uh, who is going to declare himself to be God. And when you look at the, the Hadith about the Mahdi, uh, they, there's just no room for that interpretation. Um, the Mahdi is clearly just a man. He dies relatively early to make way for uh, Isa's rule. He is uh, not even a prophet. It's pretty clear about that as well. He is just a man. He is certainly not God. And that's an explicit teaching about the Mahdi and the Hadiths. So they not only have to go against a core teaching of Islam in the Quran, the, the, um, I would almost argue the primary goal of Islam, but they also have to argue about what they know about the Mahdi. Now, of course, circumstances could happen and and that could all change, but my point here is that the the notion that the Islamic, uh, or excuse me, that the Antichrist will claim to be God, which is very clear in Scripture, does not match up with the Islamic Antichrist theory. It simply does not look like an Islamic uh, Antichrist scenario because of that fact alone. Some similar issues to that is the Antichrist sitting in the Jewish temple. Now, we, we're told this explicitly, again, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, and other places, that he is, um, and it's not just that he is going to allow the temple to be rebuilt, but he actually plans on using it for the declaration of his deity. And that is so contrary to Islamic doctrine, I'm not surprised, or rather I am surprised, that this point is not raised more often. So it's the idea that um, that a man is going to choose the Jewish temple of all places 
to declare his deity, and I would argue set, uh, set up his headquarters, require people to go to, to worship. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But um, you can find various instances that the Antichrist puts a lot of emphasis, good emphasis, on the Jewish temple. And, and that idea is just antithetical to the Islamic Antichrist view, because the Jewish temple is not at all revered like that in Islam. There is uh, a certain segment of, of uh, Islamic people that accept that uh, the temple was was truly built by Solomon, though of course they say Solomon was a good Muslim and the rest of it, but the, uh, the, there's another view, mostly with those that live in Israel, the Islamic people that live in Israel right now, it was started uh, very recently really with Yasser Arafat, is this view that there was no temple, that it was always a Muslim site and that Solomon never existed and the rest of it. It's kind of a quaint view, but it is uh, widely held in Israel among uh, Islamic people today. But that kind of goes to show you that they would kind of prefer the temple not to exist, even though uh, that is a very, very untenable position to take. They do would prefer it that way. The holy sites in on the Temple Mount is the Dome of the Rock, and it is not the temple. They don't consider it to be a holy site. So to have the Antichrist put so much emphasis on the temple is just not what you would expect if the Islamic Antichrist theorists were correct. Even today, Islamic, uh, the people who control the Temple Mount, uh, though technically Israel has control of the Temple Mount, uh, in practice, they have given the authority to to maintain and rule the Temple Mount to the Islamic people who do not allow Jewish people to even go on the Temple Mount to pray. You can't be caught holding a person's hand or bringing a Bible uh, or any kind of Jewish or Christian activities whatsoever on the Temple Mount. It is not accepted. It is because uh, such actions like that would uh, spark all kinds of trouble uh, between Jews and Islamic people. So for the most part, Jewish people do not even attempt to. I mean, there's a sporadic person who tries to go up and pray on the Temple Mount, but that's just just going to show you that that putting such a obvious Jewish uh, monument, the Temple, on the Temple Mount and giving authority to it is not what you would expect. But it is what you would expect if the if the Antichrist was claiming to be the Messiah, because that's exactly what the Messiah is supposed to do. Um, is to rule from the temple. So uh, it works with one, it doesn't work with the other. Related to that is the daily sacrifice issue. In Daniel 9.27 it says that the Antichrist will start his seven-year covenant by allowing um, daily sacrifices. Now it is true that in the middle of that seven years he stops the daily sacrifices. And I talk about this in great detail in my book False Christ, but I want to focus in on the fact that he starts his covenant with allowing the daily sacrifices. I can't think of a single scenario in which the Mahdi or anybody that is supposed to be a champion of Islam, who is a, a, a non-negotiable kind of a proponent of Islam, would allow daily sacrifices uh, of animals to Yahweh on the Temple Mount in a rebuilt Jewish temple. That is fighting words, I mean, for for Islam, for a, I mean, there's a number of problems with it. First of all, the idea of animal sacrifice in general is not accepted as a means of atonement at all in, in Islam. They consider the sacrifice in the Old Testament to really be speaking of, uh, you know, spiritual sacrifice to Allah, 
and um, there are very few instances where animal sacrifice is even, uh, uh, you know, given given any kind of weight. But that's the general, tr- you know, view. The idea of this covenant being made uh, by allowing sacrifices on the temple for three and a half years is just really hard to fit in with the Islamic Antichrist theory because there, in my understanding of this, which of course could be uh, wrong, that would be a, a reason to start a war um, because of the way that the Islamic people view um, obviously Jewish activities of any kind on the Temple Mount, let alone animal sacrifices, let alone a rebuilt temple, let alone a person declaring himself to be God. It's just very, very, very antithetical to the idea. Now, uh, another area that is debated uh, somewhat is that if the, you know, if the uh, Antichrist is going to uh, require the Jews to accept him as their Messiah, then it is preposterous. It is just absolutely not going to happen if the person claiming to be their Messiah is a champion and promoter of Islam. It's just not even within the realm of possibility that they would say, oh, our Messiah is actually a person, uh, an Islamic person who believes that Islam is true over Judaism, which is, of course, necessarily the case if he's going to be the Mahdi or anybody like the Mahdi. Now, the only argument that you could make is that, and the only argument that you could make is that the Antichrist will not claim to be the Jewish Messiah. But I would argue against that in a number of ways. John 5.43 is is usually a go-to. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. This is uh, Jesus talking to the Jewish leadership, saying that another, and that another in his own name is widely considered to be the Antichrist. But in addition to that, we have, um, for example, uh, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, Jesus telling us about the Antichrist, saying, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. This idea of somebody saying, I am the Christ, in, you know, in the original and in how it, you know, what it means is a person saying, I am the Messiah. Uh, Jesus later says, if anyone tells you, look, here is the Christ, here is the Messiah, or there, do not believe it, for false messiahs and prophets, false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, the very elect. See, I've told you beforehand. We understand that this is referring not to just general false Christ and false prophets, that it is in fact a reference to the Antichrist because in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul uses this exact same language, the signs and wonders and deceiving the elect and and all the things that these are going to do as as a, an embodiment of a teaching about the Antichrist. That is, that is what Paul is using in order to talk about his doctrine of the Antichrist. So he, that is to say Paul, understood Jesus telling us to be aware of people calling themselves the Messiah and false messiahs uh, that are going to deceive the uh, try to deceive the elect and so on. That is the Antichrist. So the 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 idea, and of course the name, the Antichrist, uh, implies Messiah as well, since it has the word Christos in it. Anyway, it's very difficult to to say that the uh, Antichrist will not present himself as the Jewish Messiah, in my opinion. And if that's true, then the idea that an Islamic man will successfully convince uh, some Jews, the majority of Jews, any Jews, that he is their Messiah, despite the fact that he is 
uh, a Muslim and believes Islam is the true religion, doesn't even believe Judaism is true, is uh, just not in the realm of possibility, in my opinion. I was reading a review of Walid Shobat's book, uh, God's War on Terror on Amazon, and uh, there was a, a pretty interesting uh, uh, review somebody wrote. They said, uh, he, Shobat, also taught in our Sunday school class. So this person is saying that Shabbat came to their church and, and you know did a presentation or whatever, and they said the following... Shabbat also taught in our Sunday school class, and I asked the question, why would the Jews accept a Muslim as their Messiah? His response, that's a stupid question. So, yeah, uh, I don't think that there is too many good responses that one can have. I'm sure that there is um, something that people could say about this, and I'm sure that it would have to rely on the fact, uh, you know, that there must be some argument against the Antichrist claiming to be the Jewish Messiah because you just can't see it any other way. Now, with Christians, it's, uh, I, I believe, often overlooked that the deception of the Antichrist is primarily intended to deceive those who claim to be Christians, not necessarily the unsaved world. Um, the Antichrist, you know, is for all intents and purposes already going to uh, have the unsaved world that reject Christ for other reasons. They're not his primary objective. And we know they're not his primary objective because the Bible tells us they're not his primary objective. He is focused almost exclusively on the saints. Now, if you believe that's whoever you believe that is, it is those who are, uh, you know, either Christians after the rapture, Christians before the rapture, Jews and Christians, whatever you want, they are. Uh, but I would submit that at least some of those people have to be Christians, uh, even if they're saved after the rapture. And we also know that we're told very uh, clearly that the Antichrist persecutes Christians in a number of cases. The saints is never used to speak of uh, Jewish people in the New Testament. But uh, I would say that, anyway, the point is, he is focused on the saints, not necessarily the unsaved world. And because of that... Um, I believe it's unlikely that the Antichrist would choose a religion that has uh, become such a boogeyman in order to win the hearts and minds of those people. Um, I'm not going to say that such a, such a scenario is impossible, as I do in the case of the Jews, but I will say that of all the religious systems that the Antichrist could choose in order to win over uh, Jews or Christians, Islam is probably the worst choice he could make. Now, I... I believe that Islam is a boogeyman for a important reason. That is, uh, the Antichrist has a, a very good use of the fear that he is uh, uh, helping along with uh, the, the Christian fear of Islam. I think it's going to play to his advantage. And I discussed that to some degree in my book, False Christ, and certainly in the upcoming book about the Islamic Antichrist uh, theory in general. So, I think this is going to conclude the podcast for today. Um, just wanted to remind you that the book is finished. It's going to be uh, probably a good good while before it's put out there. I've got a lot of work to do on it, but I do, do plan on getting to the production as soon as I possibly can. I want to remind you about uh, the debate with Alan Kirshner and Dr. Thomas Ice. Check his website, alankirshner.com, for more details on that. And uh, I guess that's it. I want to thank you all for joining me, and I will see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you would like a free copy of the Christianity 101 DVD, which contains 8 gigabytes of audio, video, and text of various discipleship materials on a data DVD, 
please go to any one of my websites and look for the Christianity 101 button. It's totally free and I'll ship it to you wherever you are in the world. If you would like to support this ministry or any of the others that I do, please consider a tax-deductible donation, which can be sent by PayPal using the email chris at chriswhiteministries.com or by clicking the PayPal button on any one of my websites. Another great way to support this ministry is by writing a review of the podcast on iTunes or writing a review of my books on Amazon. Reviews figure very prominently into the ranking algorithms of both of those websites, and the higher they rank, the more people that can be reached. Thanks for your time and for subscribing to this feed.